0: Hello, friends, and welcome to the Deeper Daily Podcast for the 31st day of March. I'm your host, Paul White. Today, you'll be listening to our DDP Essay Edition for March 2022. I'd like to begin this month with two quotes. One is from a memoir, and the other from a movie. These quotes will serve as a setup for the scripture that is to follow, and both contribute to a thought that I've worked on for years. I beg your indulgence. In his brilliant memoir, The Pastor, Eugene Peterson wrote of the allure of growth. A church planter, a pastor, a professor, and most noted, a supreme scholar, Peterson looked back over his career with the wisdom of a sage. Of the ambition of growth in crowds, Peterson wrote there are three ways people seek transcendence without God drugs, sex, and crowds. Ministers denounce drugs and sex, but seldom the danger of crowds. A crowd is an exercise in false transcendence upward, which is why all crowds are spiritually pretty much the same, whether at football games, political rallies, or church. In the 1982 film Gandhi, a reporter played by Martin Sheen spend some time with the title character, played by Ben Kingsley. As they walk through a desperately poor part of India and into a camp that Gandhi helped design, that educated and employed thousands of poor Indians, Sheen's character said, You are an ambitious man, Gandhi. A look of horror flashes briefly across Kingsley's face. I should hope not, he said. The Apostle Paul wrote that one of the works of the flesh was selfish ambitions, Galatians 5.20, an ambiguous phrase that is decidedly plural. It is not merely ambition that he warned about, but various ambitions, those centered on the self. He could have thrown us a bone, maybe given us an example of what selfish ambitions might include, but he didn't, at least not here. To the church at Thessalonica, Paul urged them to increase more and more, a command that would be applauded today as it fits nicely into our get bigger mentality. We don't need to break out a commentary or a Greek dictionary to explain what Paul means. Surely he wants their church to grow and get bigger, to increase in every possible area. He intends them to have a bigger budget, bigger buildings, and bigger goals. Or does he? The next verse, 1 Thessalonians 4.11 Contains Paul's explanation that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. There is the command, not with the emphasis on increase more and more, but rather on a shift in your aspiration toward a quiet life where you mind your own business Paul's idea was that if you aspire toward this, you will indeed increase more and more, but maybe not in the way that we applaud increase. Verse 12 is the kicker, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. Put them all together and there it is. Paul's idea of increase was to find that through your own quietness, away from ambition and desire. This attitude constitutes the proper walk toward the outsider. And once the church adopted this style, they would find that they lack nothing. There's no promise here of material wealth or perfect health, but that the life void of the demands and desires that characterize the world would be the most fulfilling life possible. This walk would make them increase in ways that matter and it would be exemplified by quiet aspirations and minding one's own business. This walk is the opposite of selfish ambitions, however we define them. It's hard to promote self and walk properly toward the outsider, for self takes the place of the outsider. You can probably see why I opened with the two quotes. Peterson's observation about crowds comes from the perspective of a pastor who has come through the grinder of church growth. I've been there. So I share his perspective in some ways. Sure, we preach about drugs and sex, but we lay off the crowd because, well, the crowd is special. The lure of growth and crowds can actually work like a drug within itself, a form of validation that says to everyone on the outside, see, we are right. That's why we're growing. Maybe you should do it like us. To get lost in the crowd is a pseudo-sense of belonging to something that matters. The crowd may have no legitimate purpose, but being in it provides both belonging and anonymity, a combination that can be intoxicating. This is an attempt to transcend the ordinary, the mundane, to feel like we're part of something that matters. While that's not wrong by itself, it can lead to the idea that the crowd is where it's at, that to miss that is to miss something big. This idea, gone to seed, bemoans the quiet place and learns to view it as a failure. In this state, we look around at our smallness and conclude that we are less than. The lure of the spectacular can then easily morph into the desire to build something others can see for the quote-unquote good of the kingdom. Before long, so much of our efforts at dream building and success can easily be a cover for the kind of selfish ambition that Paul calls a work of the flesh. But I don't want to sound like someone trying to send a message to others. We live in a time where it seems like everyone wants to confront someone with truth and make them uncomfortable. This has permeated our culture to the point that Making others face truth is thought of as a way to win the public debate. The problem is that while forcing these facts onto others, we're often closed to the same facts and questions if they make us uncomfortable. So I can talk about our church obsession with growth and crowds and natural validation, but I can't act like I don't struggle with selfish ambition. And if talking about it makes me squirm too, then so be it. Well, that builds perfectly to the quote from the Gandhi film. My wife and I watched it for the first time just a few weeks ago when Kingsley's character said that he hoped he was not an ambitious man. Something perked up inside me. It set the tone for the remainder of the film as the viewer hopes to trust the character was telling the truth. But we doubt it. Because no one builds something great without that internal furnace burning with a passion for riches or fame or recognition, right? Well, as I watched, I realized that we don't naturally believe a character when they say such things because we know that human desire for acknowledgement. We only trust Gandhi when he says it because we know his story. But that just underscores the point. We don't believe the average person in their claim for no ambition because if they can move forward without it, well, they're a unicorn indeed. The desire for growth or recognition is not inherently wrong. At least it doesn't seem to be. Growth appears to be the counter to death. As they say, if you aren't growing, you are dying. But that should lead to a better definition of death. I mean, if the local assembly is not growing numerically, does that mean that they're dying? In terms of numbers, which might mean finances, which could mean the funding of future projects, then I suppose if we aren't growing, then we are at least stagnant. But dying is where things have ceased to work, where rot and erosion is setting in. The opposite of life. Believers are full of the life of Christ. A group of believers are a family with one's weaknesses being made up for by the strengths of their neighbors, where one is regressing in their faith, another is growing in theirs. On one side of the building is a man who is struggling with sin, and on the other side is a woman who's walking in a fresh revelation of God's love. If you see only the man, you might think the church is full of sin. If you see only the woman, you might think it's full of revelatory preaching and perfect people. Neither is the full story, but both are a part of the story. That church is not best defined by how many attend on Sunday or whether they're in the middle of a building program. That church is defined by the fact that it contains the sinner and the saint, the full and the empty, the solid and the broken. One of the greatest challenges of ministry is not the crafting of a quality sermon, but of a quality outlook on ministry itself. The lure of the crowd with its built-in validation is enough to sidetrack us all. We long to do something relevant and memorable and be rewarded with the applause or at least the acknowledgement of our peers. Selfish ambitions are born in different ways, but all from the same place, our flesh. In our human desire, we aspire upward. It's a built-in gift from God. That desire, without a cross attached is just an ascent to higher heights as defined by the culture around us. With a cross, it's the journey up a spiritual hill where we lay down ourselves on the cross with Jesus and let him burn up all that doesn't belong. Both are ascents upward, but only one leads to a resurrected life. Paul warned that the practice of the works of the flesh causes us to surrender our inheritance of the kingdom of God. For all the arguments as to what this means, I land on the simplest for me to understand and put into practice. If I lean into these works of the flesh, I surrender the things offered to me by the kingdom of God. His kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. I can't nurse my selfish ambition while resting in his peace and joy. They just won't survive in the same oxygen. At the end of his sermon about the works of the flesh and the gifts of the spirit, Paul gave one more passing shot across the bow, and one we would do well to slow down and pay attention to. Let's take the last 3 verses of that chapter, read each, and see where we land. Galatians 5:24, And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Safe enough, right? We belong to Jesus. And we've nailed our selfish ambition to the cross. Hooray for us. Galatians 5.25, if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Great advice. If you're going to be a child of the kingdom, at least let the principles of the kingdom dictate your walk rather than the ideas of the world around you. If you make it to this verse after the previous one about crucifixion, you have little to scare you off. Galatians 5.26, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And there it is. Paul, unable to simply let us revel in our crucified revelations while pointing out everyone else's addictions to their flesh, warns us away from conceit. He may be preaching to himself here as much as anyone else, but I'm sure he's preaching to me. I'm prone to thinking that I've found something and that makes me special. I pray that Jesus take the fan that is in his hand and burn up this chaff in me. I close with a quote from Narnia. Take it away, C.S. Lewis, and say it so well as you always do. Do you feel yourself sufficient to take up the kingship of Narnia? asked Aslan. I... I don't think I do, sir, said Caspian. I'm only a kid. Good, said Aslan. If you had felt yourself sufficient, it would have been proof that you were not. Grace to you.